Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, it 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And oh my goodness, Logan, what a wild finish we just witnessed to an insane Eastern Conference Finals. The Boston Celtics obviously trying to make history trying to become the first team ever to come back from down 3 nothing to win the series. But the Miami Heat say nay, annihilate them on Boston's home floor and make some history of their own, becoming the first eight seed to make the final since the Knicks in 1999. So history and mayhem all around. We have a bunch to dive into today. So I'll just let you start things off wherever you want. I think the best starting point is just with the game that we just watched, Game 7. Uh, I think we got the bad Celtics again, Carson. This has been a Jekyll and Hyde act that we've seen throughout the regular season and through these playoffs. We got the bad Celtics, man. They were completely stifled by the zone. They were overly reliant on uh, three-point shooting, just a reluctance to get downhill and to create better, higher-quality shots when the shot isn't falling. They were 9-42 of from behind the arc. This team is 1-4 when they make less than 10 threes. Uh, in a game this entire season. They lose a turnover battle 15-12, to 12, and it was actually more like 14-9 to 9 until those waning minutes. Uh, they get abused there, and I thought this was a really, really poor defensive effort from the Boston Celtics, man. This is a team that is at its best. Every team is at its best when it's playing great physical defense, trying to force the other team to do what you want to do. Uh, it just goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Winning teams play great defense, and we didn't get that great effort from Boston. But I think the biggest thing is... What we got out of the stars for the Boston Celtics. We'll start with Jalen Brown, who was completely X'd out of this game. He's the fifth player, uh, courtesy of ESPN Stats and Info. This, he's the fifth player to have eight turnovers in a Game 7 since turnovers became official in 1978. He joins LeBron James, Joel Embiid, Donovan Mitchell, and Sean Kemp as the other players who have committed such treason in such a massive game. I mean, that's just abysmal. You don't want to be on that list, but... Look, I'm not going to let you off the hook, Tatum, just because JB had eight turnovers. I know Tatum was struggling a little bit with that ankle injury. I think it was a bad omen to start this game. But you got to be better, man. This duo combines for 35 points in Game 7. And Carson, I think we got a lot of flack for uh, where we ranked. Uh, we didn't rank Jimmy and Jay, or excuse me, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. We did rank Jimmy and Bam, actually. Uh, they were in our top five. But that's a big reason, too, man, is this just... The inconsistencies, man, the the struggles of these guys. And I know Jalen Brown was dealing with that uh, injury earlier in the series that really hampered his shooting, but it was a horrible series from Jalen Brown. You couple the Game 7 issues with, he goes 19-6-3 uh, on 42-16-67 splits during this series, 7-43 from deep, ugh, 25 turnovers to 24 assists. I mean, that can't happen. And then Tatum, inconsistent. Uh, disappeared during stretches of games. He's 25-10-5, obviously better than Jalen Brown in this series, but we needed 
either one of those guys to be the best player on the court to win this series. And I thought they weren't. I thought they both got outplayed by a guy like Caleb Martin. I thought Caleb Martin was the best player on the floor in the Eastern Conference Finals, period. 19-6-2 on 60-51-88 splits. He has 135 points in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's the most by any player off the bench, uh, even more than John Starks, who I think previously held the record. But this is a embarrassing series loss for the Boston Celtics. One, because of the drastic talent advantage that they possess. It took Caleb Martin being the best or second best player in this series for the Miami Heat to get this thing done. It took no Tyler Hero, right? I mean, there's just such a large discrepancy in the talent of both of these teams. Their worst tendencies were on display this entire series. Struggles with their superstars, Tatum and Brown, decision-making, simple ball handling, simple playmaking, very simple stuff. The struggles of them shooting, like I mentioned with Jalen Brown, with Tatum going through halves of not getting any buckets of fourth quarters where he's completely scoreless. Their reliance on three-point shooting, how... They struggled to create high-quality shots and would just get lulled into shooting a bunch of threes. And then lack of effort and consistent defense. Um, credit to the Boston Celtics for coming back down from 0-3, Carson. You know, that's uh, a feat in of itself. But you dug the hole yourselves, Boston. That has been the theme of these entire playoffs is Boston dug themselves into this hole. They made their own bed. And now they have to lay in it, man. That's the reality of the situation. And... Personally, man, this is one of the worst series losses I can remember uh, in my lifetime, dude. I mean, this is a stark talent difference. This is a stark, I think, star difference when you look at what you should have gotten out of Brown and Tatum and what you did get out of them. Uh, Again, man, this is a Miami Heat team that was, again, guys, I can't stress this enough. They were 21st in net rating. They were 28th in offensive rating. Like, this team was abysmal during the regular season and ends up pulling this thing out. Credit to the Miami Heat for getting this thing done, Carson. Credit to all these role players for stepping up. But to me, the story of this series is more, again, how disappointing the Boston Celtics were and why they should have gotten this done. And uh, I'm, uh, again, disappointed in them and their efforts in Game 7. The Heat deserve a lot of credit, Logan, and we will give them that credit. But I think you're right. We have to start with what an underachievement and disappointment this is for the Boston Celtics. And it's a team that has consistently underachieved throughout this playoff run. If you're looking at this dominant team that we saw start out against Atlanta, blow them out in the first two games, and then home stretch of that series, way too close for comfort, despite their massive talent advantage. And then you go into the Philly series. Game one, they lose without Embiid on the floor because their defensive level of engagement is not where it needs to be. And they fall down 3-2 in that series, despite being the much better team. And then this one, they have a glaring talent advantage. It's the two seed against the eight seed, and yet they fall down three nothing. And I think that there's several self-inflicted things that consistently bit them in this run. One that stands out is just not a high enough level of defensive engagement or effort. That was a repeated problem. But the thing that stands out most to me from this game and this series is their lack of offensive variety and how that was just an embarrassment, really. Because a lot of people might look at the glaring difference in three-point efficiency in the series and say, hey, that's just shot variance, right? Miami got super hot. Boston went ice cold. That decided things. It's not necessarily a measure of who's the better basketball team. It's not necessarily a fault of Boston's. When in all four of their losses, they're below 35% from deep. In four of seven games, they go under 29% from deep. You might just say that's bad luck. I don't necessarily agree, though, because I think this is a team that at times will just overly rely on the three ball, and they're not necessarily creating good shots. Like, early in this game, they start out 0 of 10 from deep, and sure, some of that maybe is tough luck, but a lot of it is early possession, one pass, catch, and shoot looks pretty well contested, and they find themselves in these lulls, and then the lulls only get uglier and uglier as you're missing more and leading to more transition opportunities for the opposition. And I think particularly, if you're talking about just a glaring lack of advanced offensive understanding and variety, you have to look at how Boston fared against Miami's zone in this series because it was humiliating. This game They face 34 possessions of zone defense, Logan. They produce 19 points. That's .558 points per possession. And they showed a graphic early in this broadcast coming into this game. Boston was shooting 37% against that Miami zone. 
You could very well argue it was the deciding factor in game two, in game six. It was the reason that things got so close from up 10 with four minutes to go to needing a game winner from Derek White because they went 0 of 6 against the zone in that home stretch. And it's just the lack of a great lead playmaker. One thing that absolutely stands out, right? Tatum and Brown are not consistently enough getting penetration against the zone and then making advanced reads. And I just think it speaks to a team that is in some ways formulaic, right? It's pull-up threes. It's drive and kick threes. You need that great player who can do it for you in any way. And I think that this team has some similarities to other great regular season offenses, super talented, that have fallen short in playoff runs previously. Like, I don't want to compare them to the Houston Rockets because that was maybe the most reliant on the three-ball team that we've ever seen. But it's a real thing that you need shot variety. You can be knocking on the door, but if you miss 27 straight threes, that's not just a coincidence. That's not just bad luck. That kind of stuff is going to come back to bite you. There's a reason the Rockets never won a title. And yeah, the Golden State Warriors is a big one, but so is that. You can look at, even more recently, the Clippers with Kawhi and PG. Their reliance on pull-up shooting and I think perimeter shooting overall was a limiting factor because both times they lost a playoff series in the 2020 run and then 2021, it's because they shot 33% from deep. In every series they won, I believe they were over 40. They were deadly. But the fact that you can swing so much on that one variable, it happens to everybody in today's NBA, but if you're particularly reliant on it, you are particularly liable to die by it. As people say, live by the three, die by the three. So I don't think that that's just a results-based assessment. And I do think it's a real thing that there are redundancies with Tatum and Brown. When you have two guys who are going to rely on their difficult shot making, who are not great playmakers, it's going to come back to bite you. And Jalen was really, really bad. Like, it's hard to judge Tatum because of the ankle injury. I do think that was a legitimate limiting factor for him. But Jalen, eight turnovers, eight of 23 from the field. I mean, just consistently did not have his perimeter shot in this series. But you saw his limitations as a ball handler, right? Where he's getting stripped from behind, just not aware enough, at times losing his handle on his own. And that's always been a point of discussion with him, his poor handle. But you combine that with really poor playmaking, bad decision-making, right? These early shot clock pull-up threes for him are just not good looks. And it's a real limitation of his. And it's the reason that I didn't have this as a top five duo. Again, they don't have that tier one night to night, do it no matter what kind of superstar. Tatum, this isn't the reason that I hold it against him, that I hold him out of that tier this game. But it's a reality with him, right? He is going to wax and wane depending on his difficult shot making, depending on his aggression downhill, depending on his decision making and playmaking. And then I think Jalen has real limitations as a number two. He is not overly complimentary to Tatum's skill set. And if he is not pretty dialed in as a shot maker, he doesn't bring you much value. He's always going to be a great athlete, very good transition weapon. But when you're getting bad playmaking, when the pull-up jump shooting is not there, which it's not always going to be, he's not a great pull-up jump shooter. In fact, he was 27% on pull-up threes in this playoff run, 32% in the regular season. He's not going to give you really high-level defensive impact. So all of these things start to come together, and it is the recipe for a team that is capable of under-delivering when you consider its talent level. And that's what we saw. Yeah, and a part of that recipe, Carson, is something that you touched on. It is the point bar, It is the point guard by committee, right? We've never really seen a team like that that is so reliant on all these different guards, Smart, White, uh, Brogdon, without actually having a lead guy, right? The issue there is that, you know, none of those guys are great downhill force, uh, downhill drivers, right? They're all complimentary pieces. I think Smart, Brogdon, and White are probably three of the best complimentary pieces you can have. Now, Brogdon was abysmal during this run. I think we also need to address that. Brogdon was brought in to be like the final piece of this puzzle to put them over the top, a sub-all-star kind of guy that could really deliver. And I know he struggled with injuries. I know he misses a game in this series. Uh, Brogdon was pretty horrible throughout. But the biggest issue with this offense is, like you said, Carson, is with Jason Tatum and that reliable ease of creating offense, right? You never have an issue with Luka. You never have an issue with Steph. You never have an issue with Jokic. And that's what we've been trying to hammer home these entire playoffs, guys, is it's like 
we don't just hate Jason Tatum, right? We don't hate the duo of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but there's different levels to superstardom and ease of offense. And the biggest thing is what you hit on, Carson, is dependability and consistency. And with Tatum, it's it Tatum is one of the most frustrating superstars in the league because he has all the tools, like you said. It's not a matter of, can Tatum do this? Damn, man, you will see Tatum play, make his ass off in some games where he is dotting up guys. He is going crazy out of the pick and roll. It's great ball handling. You see games where Tatum is ice cold as a pull-up jump shooter, where he is great at getting downhill, getting to the rack, being physical, getting fouls, going to the hole, and imposing his will to the rim. And then you have games like this where nothing goes right. And, you know, I mean, if his shot's not falling from behind the arc, he's just an ineffective player that can fall into these lulls. And it's that's the difference when we talk about superstars in different tiers is mm-hmm. consistency. And I think you saw a lot of that with Tatum Slore. I think this is, you know, more on Jalen Brown, like I said. But there are real concerns too, Carson, on a on – a, a grander scheme moving forward. I mean, with this new CBA, I do think it is a real concern of, do you keep Jason Tatum? Do you keep Jalen Brown for a multitude of reasons? One of those reasons is, like you mentioned, skill set redundancy. Both of these guys better with the ball in their hands. Brown, not the ideal off-ball partner if Tatum is your one. And then the issue is paying all the money out to these two guys. And an individual cap year, uh, a few years down the line, you'll be paying both of these guys $110 million, which effectively means under this new ruling that the Celtics would have $70 million to round out an entire rotation of their next seven to eight guys. You know what I mean? So uh, it's just tough. Now, the Celtics are good for the next one to two years. They've got everybody kind of locked up, everybody under control, not Jalen Brown. They're going to have to figure that out uh, after next offseason. But they can run this thing back one more time. But down the line, man, it's it's a real conversation to be had because of the skill set and because of all the money you're going to have to pay these guys, if it's really worth it, and, you know, the results have shown us, you know, I don't want to overreact to two playoff runs, but the results have shown us that it is a real struggle for these guys to work well together and to produce and to win. And this is a feeling that I... Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Had for a few years. And mm-hmm. to some extent, the Celtics disproved it with that finals run last mm-hmm. year. And again, obviously, here they are on the brink of doing it for the second straight year. But it shouldn't have really been a question this time. I mean... It parted like the Red Sea for them, the Eastern Conference. All they had to do was beat a Miami team that they were way more talented than, and they couldn't do it. And the skill set redundancy is real. The reliance on the three ball specifically is real. Because if you look at the precedent, recent champions, 
They have shot variety. And more than anything, they have great downhill rim pressurers, right? LeBron and AD in 2020, Giannis in 2021. The Warriors, you can argue, are an exception because they have like the greatest shooting duo ever and one of the greatest offensive engines ever in Steph Curry. You're not getting that kind of automatic shot quality with Tatum and Brown. 2019, Kawhi is a guy who is master from from the mid-range, has the ability to physically impose himself, get to his spots over and over again from anywhere on the floor where you're just not going to go out of a game shooting 7 of 30-something from 3. Like, it matters when you lack variety, when you lack the ability to dominate the painted area when you lack great playmaking, when you lack a true offensive superstar. It's just tough to win a title. And I know that there are a lot of people who will defend the Tatum-Brown pairing and say, look at all that they've accomplished when they're, whatever, 25 and 26. And it is very impressive. But I don't know that I see... Jalen Brown on the trajectory to where he's going to grow as a playmaker and he's going to become the sort of versatile multi-impact winning star that would make me confident in this team actually going out there and winning the title because Logan this isn't last year's team they're better they added Malcolm Brogdon Derek White got better like this team was supposed to win the title and instead they went out in an embarrassing way let me ask you real quick a hypothetical if you were Boston and this was on the table, would you trade? I don't think this will be on the table. Would you trade Jalen Brown for Damian Lillard? Absolutely. Unequivocally. If Portland could get their heads out of their asses and <laughs> realize that the rebuild is the move and that they're not going to just spring themselves into contention and that maybe you actually want to build around a young core of Shaden Sharp and the number three pick in this draft, be it Brandon Miller or Scoot Henderson. I think that would be a home run for the Celtics because to have the ability to have that kind of great facilitator that Dame can be, that sort of pick and roll weapon where teams have to guard him out to 30 feet and so he has some of that gravity and just the fact that Dame can be the best shot maker on the floor, the best scorer, the best offensive player, the best playmaker and Tatum doesn't have to be that every single night when he's not in that top tier Sure, you're going to lose a little bit something defensively, and that is a great advantage the Celtics have, that even though their effort may not be the most consistent, it's very hard to attack anybody on that defense. But I think that that downside is outweighed by the upside and how that could legitimize this as an elite playoff offense because I'm just not convinced that it's all the way there right now. And this is an embarrassing loss. This is a meltdown. Like, Again, congrats to them for coming back from down 3-0. They never should have been in that spot. And the same issues that we have worried about with this team over the last few years have been exposed again. And I don't know how you just ignore that and write it off as, ah, tough luck. Get him next time. Ah, Tatum's ankle was messed up. Maybe you shouldn't have been in a game seven, right? You put yourself in a spot that was dangerous and you paid the price accordingly. I do want to say, from the Heat perspective, Caleb Martin just played, I think, a legitimately all-time role-player series. You mentioned it, 19 points per game, 60% from the field, 49% from deep. I don't really have a comparison for this in my mind. I tried to find some where I thought about role-players just stepping up to this incredibly impressive level. I thought about... Fred Van Vliet in the 2019 finals, he had been brutal, obviously was not the kind of all-star caliber guy he would become. And 22 in game six, 14 a night on 40% from the field overall in that series, given really good effort defensively. I thought about Robert Ory in the 2002 Western Conference finals, where most famously he has the game-winning shot in game four, obviously the three off of the... Shaq tip out to him, but he was really good in that series overall, 11, 11, and four and a half. But Caleb Martin, as you said, was in the conversation for the best player in this series. And in multiple games, this one included was indisputably the best player on the floor for Miami. This game, he was the best player on the floor, period. Last game, he was the best player on the floor for Miami, I thought. And what was so impressive was we've talked throughout these playoffs about 
how lights out he's been as a shooter, obviously. How good he's been attacking closeouts, getting to the rim where he's finishing in the restricted area at almost 75% efficiency. Absurd. Has had some really creative finishes there. This game, though, Logan, he steps up and he gets four buckets in the mid-range. Like, he's hitting baseline turnarounds. He maybe attacks a closeout and there's help at the rim. So, yeah, he'll just hit that mid-range pull-up in your mouth. That's not normal from a role player. That is like star kind of stuff. And in a game seven rock fight where both teams are struggling to score the ball consistently, when you can step up and provide that for your team, it is invaluable. So I legitimately can't think of a comparison. I don't know. Maybe people would look at the guys who won finals MVP like Iggy in 2015 or whatever, but Iggy's just in a different class. Like Iggy could be a hall of famer, dude. Caleb Martin. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned was struggling to get signed. Obviously, I don't want to mention it again because they do it on the broadcast over and over again, but the guy was actually undrafted. Like, he's been very good throughout this run. He has been one of their top four players. I thought you could argue Gabe Vinson was their third best guy through the first two rounds. But this is historic stuff from a role player in Caleb Martin. I'm trying to uh, scrub my brain, man. Like I, Jason Terry, I, I don't know. Like I'm trying to think about any guys that have stepped up. But it, 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 that's the biggest part of it is it's like it's Caleb freaking Martin. I know this is the Heat identity, man. This is what they do. They find diamonds in the rough. They find guys who were grinding in the G League looking for opportunities. That's a big part of the Heat culture as well too, man. This is a bunch of hungry guys with a chip on their shoulder who know they have to play hard and – Gift effort, but again, man, like you said, that's what makes this so significant. Is it's one thing if Gabe Vincent and Struess and Duncan Robinson and Martin are playing hard and giving their best effort. I mean, Caleb Martin is doing legitimate, yeah, star level things, man. The way he's been attacking closeout, the way he's been scoring the basketball in general, the finishes at the rack, the closeouts, everything he has been doing has been that level. Honestly, Carson, in recent memory, and I know that they get bounced. The biggest comp I can probably give is in this year's playoffs, and that's from Austin Reeves. Like, I can't think of any other guys that have really remarkably stepped up and shown out like that in such a meaningful way. Like, if you're just looking not results-based, right, because Martin does this, again, guys, in a Game 7 where he is the best player on the court to send a team to the NBA Finals. That's why that's such a big deal. Reeves is probably the other guy that I can say that, like, really came out of left field, but, I mean... Reeves has been solid all season long. Like, this has been a... It's not like Caleb Martin was doing... You know, Caleb Martin was like five points a game during the regular season. I watched a lot of Heat games, man. It's just, you know, he's either making or missing catch-and-shoot opportunities or he's attacking a closeout at a decent level. He took a step up in these playoffs, and the Miami Heat needed it. It, it It's truly, truly remarkable, man. And it's, just, it's amazing to me the butterfly effect that really had to happen for the Miami Heat to win it, dude. It... it if the heat smelled blood in the water, they were going to strike and they were going to put this thing away, man. And they sensed it in this game, dude. It's It really is truly remarkable that a team that feels, and it just feels weird that they're getting to the finals and I'm still stressing the point that they're so untalented, right? Like to me, it still feels like this team is, I don't know, man, not as talented, is outmatched, is overwhelmed. Like I still feel like this might still be one of the worst teams to ever make the NBA finals, but it's just remarkable and I don't want to do like I don't want to make this a big negative thing about the Miami Heat because this is one hell of an accomplishment uh but it still does feel that way man with all these undrafted guys with all these gritty guys that have to play above their means for this team to win series it still feels like Miami is just outclassed talent wise I don't know that we can say that they're playing above their means at this point I mean really Caleb Martin is consistently balling out this game sure is an exception but on top of everything that we laid out offensively yeah it's the constant little things right how incredible he's been positionally on the glass his high iq plays defensively and his constant effort there gabe vincent yeah has his limitations right he's a little unathletic guy he's going to struggle to score on the interior but teams give him looks out a drop and he's going to step up and he's going to make them he's a very good pure shooter of the basketball duncan robinson is just flat out balling, dude. And he's always been one of the best pure shooters in the NBA. But the comfort that he's had recently, making reads out of pick and roll, facilitating his brilliance as a cutter. I just don't know what out of that is really unsustainable. Like, yeah, the collective shooting, sure. That's above expectations. They're a really good shooting team. At times, though, it is just downright 
ridiculous. I still think that they are definitely on the low end of talent to make the NBA Finals, the very low end. But these guys are legit good, and they're legitimately playing very well right now, and they have different options, right? Like Kevin Love went from being a pretty key guy across those first two series to not mattering in this one. Max Struess' guy is capable of making big shots. I'm really impressed by the Heat. And Martin, I will say, I think, had a fine regular season. Like, he was a guy who they leaned on as a starter. But if you look compared to last year in the postseason, he really wasn't much of a factor then at all. But he's always been a premier dog-in-him candidate. And I've always really liked that about Caleb Martin. But if you're talking about dogs, dude... We got to talk about Jimmy Butler, and it's not that this was a masterpiece from Jimmy, but it felt like a lot of people really jumped on the rag on Jimmy train after game six. When he was not good, his shot making was abysmal. He deserved criticism, but I don't know if he pissed a lot of people off with his timeout thing after game three, or if people just felt that playoff Jimmy had become overhyped. I don't know, because it felt like there was a lot of blowback, and guess what? He still was the best star on the floor in this big game and obviously was able to show some big-time perimeter shot making with the three triples. I thought was able to get into the lane, create some good shots for himself. Early was a little bit hesitant for sure. A couple of unnecessary pump fakes, passing up good looks, but I thought shook some of that as the game went along and had some really high-impact plays defensively. Again, made a fool of Jalen Brown a couple times. And is one of the great playoff risers in NBA history. It's not arguable. Like, last two playoff runs, Logan, he's 28-7-5 and on 59% true shooting. And there are nine guys in NBA history have who have gone 27-7-5 on 58% true shooting in multiple playoff runs with a minimum of 10 games to those runs. So we know that you're legit going multiple rounds. And it's Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Kareem, Kawhi, Michael Jordan, Jimmy Butler, Nikola Jokic, Dirk Nowitzki, Karl Malone, unfortunately. Like, he's in rarefied air, dude. You don't fluke into that, right? We've talked about it. His level of physicality at his size, his efficiency of movement, his constant patience and willingness to play at his own pace, his lethal mid-range shot making, his high IQ playmaking, his defensive dominance, these things translate over and over again. And... I said that he was making a push to be a top 50 player of all time. And it felt like everybody started losing their mind to that just because he had a couple of down games. But if you look at the all-time conversations that Jimmy belongs in, I went and looked through. Since the ABA-NBA merger in 1976, there have been 24 guys who have been the clear-cut best player on three conference finalists. I kept out of this conversation the guys from the 1978 to 1980 Sonics, I think there's some ambiguity between Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson, who was the best player once you get to 79 and 80. And then the 03 to 08 Pistons, I don't know, take your pick, Chauncey or Ben Wallace. I think there are times where Rip Hamilton is in that conversation. But if you're talking about clearly the best guy, as Jimmy is and has been on now three conference finals in four years, it's 24 dudes. And the bottom tier of that, is Reggie Miller, Jason Tatum, Paul George, and Sidney Moncrief. And a lot of people would put Jimmy in there. I think that that is the tier he belongs in out of this conversation. So that's not the 24 best players of the last 50 years, but it's not a bad reflection of guys who have gone out there and consistently led to winning at a very high level as the best guy. And then if you go to the clear best player on two-time NBA finalists, which Jimmy Butler has now done in that same period. It's only 19 guys. And I think the weakest on the list is Clyde Drexler, Logan. I mean, maybe some people would say Jason Kidd, but like no matter what, you're looking at fringe top five guys in the league. Kidd is even higher than that. Kidd could have won MVP in 2002. Clyde was the best guy on two finals teams and then went out and won a title as a number two. Like, absolutely, all these guys are top 50 players of all time. Or at least very, very close to it. So, Jimmy maybe doesn't have the top-tier regular season resume, but I believe he's five-time All-NBA in All-Defense. And when he consistently is able to elevate his game to this top tier as a scorer, and again, 
The last two years have been special. The bubble run was also special. He became one of five players ever to average 26 points and eight assists per game in a final series. Logan joining Magic, Michael, LeBron, and Steph Curry, who are among the five greatest offensive players to ever play the game. Why would we discount this? Do we care more about the regular season than we do about playoff greatness? Because that doesn't make sense to me. Playoff basketball is what's real. That's peak intensity. That's, hey, who's going to show up in these big moments? Whose skill sets translate? Who has the necessary versatility and variety of impact? Jimmy Butler answers all those questions very, very authoritatively. So you got to put him in those conversations. And this is another testament to his legacy. Yeah, Carson, I think people were really overreactionary to those last three games. I mean, Jimmy didn't have a great game, uh, a great stretch by his standards, 22 Eight and six, uh, you know, with 37, 39, 77 splits. Just not a absolute world beater, you know. I think Jimmy absolutely has to be in that conversation, and I think it's wrong to hold a regular season against him. I think it's more impressive that Jimmy can relax for so long, and then when he needs to take over, take over like he does. Man, he's one of the greatest players of this century. He's one of the greatest players of all time. That's not a crazy take. It's just what Jimmy is at this point, and. Again, man, that's a distinction that I want to make, too. One, Carson, you talk about Boston being starved for, you know, a lead guy offensively. There's nothing that Jimmy can't do. The The difference between a guy like him and Tatum, and again, you know, people will look at counting numbers during the regular season. They'll look at overall records, and they'll draw conclusions, and maybe they'll throw this ankle injury in there as well. It's like Jimmy Butler just exerts a control on the game that Jason Tatum just doesn't have, man. He can do it from every level. At will, it feels like, when he's on. He can control the game as a playmaker. He plays at his own tempo. There's so many different ways he can kill you. And then just uh, as a leader, man, I think he's just a, a guy that people can rally behind and really get uh, really get behind. And you talk about, Carson, why he deserves to be up there with those legends. What's the one thing that sticks out about superstars more than anything else, right? The numbers, the the championships, the all, you know all the accolades. It's the moments. Jimmy has classic playoff moments that I'm never gonna forget, man. I'm never gonna forget the run in the bubble. I'm never gonna forget him slaying the dragon that was the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Like Jimmy just has these classic all-time NBA moments that you know other superstars don't have too. I think. And honestly, Carson, even though he doesn't have a ring yet, if the Nuggets wash him, I think Jimmy has a conversation to to be higher than maybe even some guys that have rings too, dude. Like, I think he's – I'd probably take him all time over Clyde. I don't know about Jason Kidd. That's that's mm-hmm. tough because I think that – I would not take Jimmy over Clyde for what it's really? worth. Yeah. I think Clyde was a different level as a scorer at his peak. Wow. That, that shocks me a little bit, bro. I don't know. I'm not – it's not like I was sitting back there in the 80s watching Clyde, you know, because uh, I wasn't. I've, a... <laughs> I, I've watched my fair share of Clyde. And you would really. What about defensively? Do you think there's a gap there? I do think that there's a gap there. But I think that Clyde was also a really, really good playmaker. Like, just an absurd athlete mm-hmm. and a very good playmaker. And I think that that's why you look at those Portland teams, dude. Obviously, they were very talented, but consistently elite in the regular season once you're getting into the late 80s early 90s range and then you have two finals runs and then obviously he goes and he turns around Houston season and brings them a ring is hugely important to that I mean Akeem was monumentally great but I don't think that they win again in 1995 without Clyde Drexler so that's a level of historical significance that I don't want to put Jimmy above Mm -hmm. But again, Jimmy is starting to enter these conversations at the very least. We talked about him versus Paul George, and you and I were split. I think this was just after the first round. I was leaning PG. I think that Jimmy, with this run, has surpassed him. I mean, best guy on two finals teams is no joke. It's no coincidence. And two finals teams that have faced talent deficits. Bam is really good. Bam's a top 25 player. You can put him a little bit higher than that. If you want, but again, last year, there was not another consistent high level offensive option on this team. Hero wasn't great. Lowry sucked. And yet they almost beat the Boston Celtics game seven in the conference finals. You go back to the bubble run Mm -hmm. and they beat 
The Bucks and the Celtics, both of whom are more talented. Dragic was great in that run. He was like a legit third star. But now you have this one again, and we're talking about all these role guys who were really good. Yeah, but Boston didn't just have this top-tier duo. They had what felt like the best cast of role guys for a lot of this season. And who comes out on top again? It's Jimmy and the Heat. I think everybody deserves credit for that. I think that Eric Spolstra is a top 10 coach of all time, definitively. But you got to put respect on Jimmy's name. And I don't want to pretend that he's in a different tier than Tatum because throughout this series, I'd say that they were pretty darn close. But I do feel that overall throughout this run, Jimmy had a more impressive level of consistency. I do prefer his offensive poise, his ability to get to his spots, to score in the lane with that level of consistency. And he is the better two-way player. So I do think that Jimmy is better than Tatum right now. And that's not reacting to this game because Tatum had an ankle injury. That's how I felt. So he deserves a bunch of credit for the totality of this run. Bam, I thought we continued to see some of his limitations in this game. I mean, he was very good defensively and is clearly among the five best defensive players alive with his level of switchability and rim protection. Stellar. And I thought he impacted the game with his facilitating and setting some really great screens and on the glass. But he just needs to be better creating for himself. He needs to be a more effective mismatch attacker. Like, when he's got Derek White on him, it just has to be leading to buckets and too often I think that we see Bam not able to really move guys out of the post settling you know his finishing wasn't great in this one he was fumbling off the catch a bit being affected by guys length on the inside and there were a couple of really nice possessions where when he looks to get a step one time it was on Horford another time it was on one of the guards tough finishes but they both went and I thought they were better looks than just face up mid-range look when again he's in the mid to high 30s for mid-range but yeah these guys even if it wasn't their peak level in game seven of this series consistently put themselves in positions throughout these first three rounds to where they had the margin in this series and they earned it point blank it is a historic upset run though like if we're talking about where it fits into the scope all time i think there's two really you have to look at the other eight seed the 1999 Knicks, who similarly did it while missing a key player. Patrick mm-hmm. Ewing got hurt in the middle of that run. That team, I think, has more players who you'll look at on paper and say, oh, wow, there's actually a lot of talent there. And obviously, it was a lockout shortened season, 50 games. You got Allen Houston. You got Latrell Sprewell. You got Grandma Mai. You got young Marcus Camby. The one that I think is probably going to be the least talented finals team for a long time is the 81 Rockets who won 40 games and who had Moses and then it was Calvin Murphy and then it was Robert Reed. Like just uh, a team that really probably did not belong there, but they got there. But I do think that the Heat are in that tier in terms of how surprising this is. You look at the path they had to go through, beating the Bucks, only two and a half games of Giannis, nevertheless a historic upset. And then now doing this against the second seeded Celtics, it's one of the great upset runs in NBA history. Yeah, and I think it should not that it should like inspire teams to build their teams like this. It's hard getting two stars, but you know, with this new CBA Carson, I think Miami's kind of going to be a a blueprint for how teams are built moving forward in the sense that like this is sustainable in the way that you know, teams aren't going to have a whole lot of money to spend on other guys. This is a really cheap roster that just works well together. And I think it should, I think this should, should instill faith in the teams around the league too, man, that if you can just, don't get me wrong, you don't get this done without Jimmy. You don't get this done without Bam being excellent defensively. You don't get this done without all of these role players stepping up. But I think it should instill faith in teams that no matter where you are in the standings during the regular season, no matter how far it may seem like you were away down the stretch uh, into the playoff, uh, you know, into the playoffs, Keep pushing. If you out-execute, if you out-hustle, if you play above your standards, I mean, you can make playoff runs. I'm not saying that this is sustainable. I don't expect an eight seed to do this again in a long time. That's why this is so remarkable. But this is parity in the NBA, man. And how talented every team is around the league, how 
fluctuating shooting can really determine the outcome of series. Like, I think Boston had real flaws that were exposed in this one too, but it's, if you out-execute, if you out-hustle, if you play above expectations, you can make things happen. And I think this should, I don't know, it should inspire teams across the league that you're never really out of the hunt, man. This is a team that I've underestimated along the way. I did not pick them against Chicago. I didn't pick them against Milwaukee. I didn't pick them against New York. I didn't pick them against Boston. After Boston came back 3-2, I said, I think Boston's going to finish this thing out and win in seven. I counted out the heat. I counted out Jimmy every single step along the way. And it it didn't matter. The Miami Heat out-executed. They outperformed expectations. And they played great basketball. Um, I don't know, man. I think this is something the team should take away from. And and build around cores, believe in themselves a little more. Again, it's, it's going to be hard to replicate something like this, but this is the biggest talent overachievement in NBA history that I can remember. I can't, I can't think of a team outperforming expectations like this. Uh, this is the most impressed I've ever been with a single team, bro. Well, the 1981 Rockets didn't have a Bam out of bio. They had Moses, though. Put say. some spec on Moses' They didn't have a name. Caleb Martin. Yeah, they certainly did have Moses. I don't know if I totally agree with this is something that other teams should look to. I mean, I love the optimism of it, but it definitely helps to have a Jimmy Butler, a guy who can just flip the switch and be a top eight player. And it definitely helps to have the best coach in the league, like by a noticeable margin and to be able to unlock the shooting ceiling where you're 39% from deep. And they also just find the right guys. They find the dogs. They find the guys who can have this massive shooting impact and complement their stars. So props to the Heat, dude. And it is cool to have this sort of collective underdog story as we head into the finals now. The Heat much more so than the one seed Nuggets with the best player alive, obviously. But I have seen some people try to diminish that angle, become very upset with how much Mike Malone has talked about the media's focus on everybody but them. I saw one tweet, which I probably shouldn't even acknowledge, but being like underdog story. Aaron Gordon was a top five recruit in his class. Michael Porter Jr. was the number one player in his class. Jamal Murray was a top 10 recruit. Somebody mentioned that Bruce Brown was a five-star recruit who obviously went on to be a second round pick. Like, yeah, MPJ had three back surgeries and couldn't move and fell to the, was it 14th pick? For a reason, right? Aaron Gordon was just sort of dwindling in... Orlando. It's just an absurd thing to say. This is a team that has been discredited, counted out, and not discussed nearly enough for how great they are. And Nikola Jokic is the epitome of that. A guy who's the best basketball player alive, and yet the majority of talk about him this year was how do we debunk that? How can we delegitimize his greatness and talk about the fact that he's the worst defensive player alive or how you can only think he's great if you're box score watching and it's all stat padding, right? These are two teams that have not received the appropriate credit led by a couple of star guys who have stepped up in the big moments. And I think it's cool and I think it's fun. So we're going to do a full preview of the finals tomorrow. Quickly though, what's your gut feeling instinct and a couple things that stand out to you for Nuggets Heat? I mean, look, Miami fans, please don't get mad at me when I say this. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I'm not going to flip sides here. I'm not going to pretend and act like I've been in Jimmy or Miami's corner this entire time. I've picked against him these entire playoffs. I will once again do that, and I challenge Jimmy Butler to please prove me wrong because basketball is stupid and makes no sense. I would take the Nuggets in five. Um, I just think, and this is a really boring answer, I think that the Heat just don't have an answer for Nikola Jokic. I think it's going to be really mm-hmm. hard to slow him down. And again, man, uh, we, we talk about physical disadvantages. Miami, maybe uh, we'll get a guy like Tyler Hero back, but I don't think they have a lot of great point of attack defenders. Guys are going to be able to slow down the individuals in these matchups. I think that in this series especially, I think Bam is going to be I think Bam is really going to struggle, and I really think that matters, man. I know with getting Tyler Hero back, you're expecting hopefully an influx of 15 to 20 points really efficiently a night. You're hoping that he can play a really big role in these finals and help you know, uh, close that talent gap between Miami and Denver. But you know, I, I just think it's going to be a real struggle for Bam Adebayo, and he's going to have to step up offensively for this team to win this series. Like, I don't think Bam's going to be able to get easy offense against Jokic. I think that they're going to be able to exploit him a little bit. Um, and, yeah, 
I, I just don't think they have an answer for Nikola Jokic. That's really boring, but that's my biggest take, man, is that that's part of this big talent discrepancy is that I just think mm-hmm. that they don't have an answer for him. I would take, if both of these teams play their best, I know we said this for Boston too, I'd take Denver in five, man. I don't really think it's much of a series. I think Denver kind of proves that they are unequivocally the best team in basketball. I'm with you, and again, Heat fans, you should only be pleased with people picking against you at this point because clearly it hasn't worked so far. I would also go Denver in five, though, and the reason I feel like this is the most insurmountable talent deficit for Miami is that I don't think Denver is exploitable in Mm -hmm. the way that Milwaukee and certainly Boston was, right? It is an offense that has so much variety, that is clearly the best in the league. They have more shot variety. They have more truly great shot makers. And they have an offensive player, Nikola Jokic, who is just in a different stratosphere than Jason Tatum in terms of his dependability game to game. And it's like you said, I don't know how you take that away. And yes, my nerd such flag has fallen down and it is down for good for this episode. Again, it just comes down to this offense not being... uh, containable really like if you look at how devastating that zone was for Miami in this series against Boston absolutely obliterated them it was very effective against New York too they saw a lot of success packing the paint forcing the Knicks to beat them with their spot up shooting Denver's just great in every offensive phase like they put up 1.16 points per possession versus zone in the regular season which is ridiculous and 1.39 so far on too small a sample size to take anything away from, but it's just hilarious in these playoffs. Like Jokic is going to dissect you from any point on the floor. Their shooting is sensational. They don't turn the ball over. They don't make mistakes. They can create a great look for MPJ or Jamal out of a handoff at any time. And Jamal can kill you with his pull-up jump shooting out of pick and roll, or he can hit Jokic who will kill you with his floaters or Jokic will find the shooter, or Jokic can post up, and if you double, obviously, you're done. It's going to a cutter or a shooter. And if you let him attack you in single coverage, Bam's a great defender. He doesn't matter one-on-one against Jokic. There's just too many different avenues. And I also don't think that Bam can attack Jokic. Mm -hmm. That'll maybe be something that we'll hear. Like, okay, well, how do you exploit Jokic defensively? It was such a huge talking point coming into that Lakers series. I think his reliance on creating out of the post out of isolation not gonna work dude it's like we saw with ad right not great skilled shot making so you're not going to be able to go through him he's a really big guy he's long he's got good hands he's got good instincts so what you're going to rely on your touch shots in your mid-range game that's fine you can't exploit Jokic with any of that so I think it comes down to this offense being unstoppable for Denver, them having by far the best player on the floor. And I do think that their role players are actually better. I don't want to discount the Heat guys because of how good they've been so consistently. But the Nuggets guys have done their jobs exceptionally well throughout this run. That's another difference, right? Boston, it wasn't just shooting variants. It was also the effort not being there at times. Nobody's played with more consistent effort outside of Miami than Denver in this run. They take every game seriously. They take every possession seriously. They have home court, the most significant home court in the playoff field. I'm going Denver in five as well, but we'll talk in more detail about that tomorrow. Last thing to touch on here, just real quick, Logan, we do have a couple of coach hirings. Nick Nurse to the 76ers and Adrian Griffin, the Raptors assistant to the Bucks. What are your reactions, your takeaways to these? You know, I mean, I think Nick Nurse is a great hire for Philadelphia. Um, I think he's going to be a great hire wherever just because of in-game adjustments, man. Actually, like, just rotational stuff. Philly had to move on from Doc Rivers, man. I think, you know, the stat after he got canned was – you know, the most losses after leading in a playoff series in NBA history. It's just such a proven track record. Um, Doc's not a guy who schematically during a game is going to swing the tide. And again, I can't stress enough how important that is when you saw it's one of the biggest keys to Miami making a deep run in these playoffs. Spo out executing Bud, Spo out executing uh, Tom Thibodeau, Spo out executing Missoula. I mean, it's one of the biggest things in these playoffs, and it is critical to have a coach that 
is great at rotations, that is great schematically, that can come up with stuff. And I think we saw Nick Nurse prove that during the uh, finals run with Kawhi Leonard. And granted, that was a great roster. That was a great team. But we saw him out-execute Golden State in the finals. And so I think it's a, I think it's a home run higher. Griffin, I'm just glad to see another former player getting an opportunity at a head coaching gig, man. I think there's a... I can't say this for everybody across the league. Obviously, Spoh's one of the prime examples of not a player. I mean, he was a TV guy, you know, before coming in and becoming a head coach. What a turnaround. So it's not a, you know, a catch-all kind of thing when you get a former player. But I think guys like Darvin Ham, um, not Jason Kidds, there are examples of guys not succeeding, but... I, I like it because I think a player can rally behind a guy who played the game, who knows what he's doing a little more. And again, I think it's time for Milwaukee to go in a new direction, man. It, it's just past time. Um, so yeah, man, I, I can't say much about Griffin because this is his first head coaching opportunity. I like another, co- uh, another former player getting an opportunity uh, in the league to coach, but I, I think Philly really hit a home run with Nick Nurse, man. I think he's just, he's a really smart guy who's going to know what to do with this roster. So uh, yeah, I like both of these hires, especially just out with the old and with the new, man. You had to move on from Bud. You had to move on from Doc, dude. It was past time. I really like the nurse move, and people can talk about his tendency to play his stars and his starters overall heavy, heavy minutes. And I think that there was a serious issue in terms of the roster direction that I think him and Masai Ujiri bear responsibility Mm -hmm. for in Toronto, like trying this experiment with just a bunch of really athletic wings, none of whom are overly skilled offensively, not a good shooting team without like a central great playmaker that didn't work. But I think his ability to scheme, to make adjustments is proven. This is a guy who I think is up there for the best defensive head coach in the NBA. And, it's like you said, Philly needs to have the opportunity to actually have a meaningful leg up in one of these matchups. And Doc just has never really provided that. So you get a proven championship guy who I think is one of the brightest minds in the NBA. And Griff and I also don't have a ton to say because you don't really know what the guy's offense looks like, what his ability to establish a culture is. You just don't have that in an assistant role. But He comes from, I think, one of the best organizations in the NBA. I assume that a lot of this was Giannis. I mean, it's been reported that he vouched for him. And so, great, you get the guy who he wants. I think Giannis had some frustrations with Bud based on his comments about wanting to take on Jimmy. And Bud is a really good basketball coach. I think a regular season pioneer to some extent but has not had that malleability in the playoffs to, again, swing games in your favor. And we've seen how much that matters in this heat run. And we've seen how it's limited Milwaukee, for example, like underachieving in the playoffs every year, except for that title run, Philly underachieving under Doc Rivers in multiple playoff runs. Players bear responsibility for that, but so does the coach. So, man, here we go, Logan. What an insane ride it has been so far. The NBA Finals are almost upon us. And again, we will preview it in its entirety tomorrow. Shout out to the Miami Heat, though, dude. Again, hand up. Pick against them in every series. And uh, even coming into this game, right, they had none of the momentum. It felt like game six was the one that they had to steal with how off Boston was shooting. And then it turned out that the Celtics went and handed them another 20% night from deep. And that'll do it. But they went out there and they took it, too. So, It's been an incredible postseason. It's been a joy talking about it with you guys this entire time, and we will keep on doing it all the way through. So if you guys enjoyed the show, then we appreciate you. As always, you can find us on YouTube on the volume page, or you can just listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can follow us on social media. TikTok is at NerdSesh. Instagram is the same handle, and Twitter is at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can also join our Discord at the link tree across our social media bios to just talk basketball, football with us whenever you want. So with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Wee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.